NBA podcast. I am Jason, and with me as usual is Rich. Hello, Rich. What is going on, Jason? G- got a fun show idea going on. This one it was, um, it's really interesting because it's very much a capsule in time that I don't think really got a lot of attention at the time, and certainly, um, you know, it hasn't been looked upon since, but we are going to take a look at the NBA's Silver Anniversary Team announced in 1971. Yeah, we've, we've done, I mean, obviously we did our own, you know, redoing of the 50 greatest players and whatnot. And I think that's the, that's the one that everybody kind of remembers is that, you know, the 50th anniversary, that 50 team, you still see B-roll of guys with that. People are talked about that when you go to Wikipedia pages, like one of the top headlines is this guy was named one of the NBA's 50 greatest players or whatnot. But you really don't, never hear about the Silver Anniversary team. I'll be honest, even before we, we started doing the notes for this, I don't know that I knew a whole lot about this team. So I think, like you said, exactly, it was something that was kind of lost to time. So I think it's going to be a great topic to kind of go over and 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 shine some light on on these guys yeah and really it's more when you when we have looked at it it's been more in the context of like okay well here's the guys who picked for the 25th anniversary you know and and here's the guys for the 50th anniversary right 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 yeah and and before we even get into it we we need to deal with the issue of the fact that 1971 really isn't the nba's 25th anniversary that's that's what's on the official record we go back oh, to the B- what come on <laughs> I, 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 I know lie about that come on well yeah so they're gonna ignore an entire predecessor league no they would never do that come on. they would never do that yes so <laughs> yeah the, the the whole issue of the fact that the combination of the baa and the nbl is better understood i think to be a merger rather than an absorption but the powers that became afterward there seems to be some sort of intentional um effort at changing the record to make it seem as though the BAA were, was the dominant league and the NBL is an afterthought and those records are not officially part of the NBA's history whereas the BAAs are so we've gone on and on about that before but I, I feel like we that needs to be said before we make any uh, you know further discussion of this issue yeah so just just keep in mind that you know 25th anniversary by the NBA's way of their history, like their their sort of crafting of history versus the NBL, which the NBL established in 1937, of course. So that changes a lot of, of the different, you know, times and whatnot, because the BAA was 1946. So it's definitely a dramatically different, you know, there's about 10 years or so uh, that are not being accounted here. So yeah, 25th anniversary from the founding of the BAA as opposed to the NBA or whatever. So a little little way to kind of, yeah, you know, <laughs> however you want to do it. But yeah, as you said, we've we've had many, many shows about that uh, in the past. So just to keep that in mind for, yeah, for yeah, the context I, I, of this. Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, I mean, this is an interesting look, though, at where the NBA stood in 1971. The fact that, okay, the league had established itself at a point both in just how long it had been around, even if you go back to 1950, and the fact that it was successful enough at this point where you could you, you had this legacy and tradition and you were at a point where okay we've gone beyond being you know in these re- really small arenas in the 50s and getting basically no attention to you know we're not you know by, by far not the most successful league in the world and even still in some ways being overshadowed by college basketball but we are a league that has established itself and has tradition tradition and has a you know enough of a place at the table where you know we're we're strong and powerful at this point, or more powerful anyway than, than we had been. Oh, certainly. Yeah, yeah. And of course, we'd see, you know, bigger times coming in, in, in the 80s and the 90s or whatever. But the 70s felt like the first time, especially the early 70s, where they finally had started to get some sort of breath of air in, in, in the American sports scene. Because really, yeah, they existed in the 50s and the 60s or whatnot. But like, yeah, like you're saying, we're talking little towns. We're talking, you know, cities that you would never think would have NBA teams that had NBA teams and, you know, did success, you know, had success in those in, in those cities or whatnot. But yeah, we're playing small armories still we're still playing very small arenas we're we're obviously 
obviously, as you said, secondary to college basketball and secondary to pretty much every sport, uh, every other major sport in, in the country. So, yeah, the, the early 70s finally felt like the first time where they were able to kind of breathe a little bit. And they had, you know, obviously a, a, a great team in New York. Uh, they had some stars. They had Boston and, and, and the legacy there. So it was finally starting to get into the public conscience, uh, the NBA, and, and, and finally felt, for, like you said, for the first time, like it was a, a, a one of the real dominant sport leagues of, of the country. Yeah, and at at this point, you know, the the Knicks had won the championship in 1970, which, you know, brought a lot of attention to the league, beating the Lakers in seven games, the Willis Reed game and all that. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had joined the league. He was the next great big man. Um, You know, the next great star was going to carry things forward. There was a lot of potential at this point of an NBA-ABA merger. There there were some legal hurdles to it, but they had started playing... um, exhibition games against each other and you know there was some excitement along that right at this point when this was announced which was December 11th 1971 the Lakers were in the middle stages of what would be their 33 game winning streak they actually had I, I believe tied the record on December 10th at, at 20 and would break the record at on the 12th at 20. One So a lot of excitement going on. There was some predicting that pro basketball could be the sport of the 70s like the NFL was in the 60s. As we know, there would be some stumbles ahead, although I do think that that promise eventually came along in the 80s. It just took longer than people expected. Absolutely. So... One major thing that you see on this list is that there's a decision to not include active players. Um, So it takes a lot of really important players in the NBA's history out of consideration. Um, So Wilt Chamberlain is not included. Oscar Robertson not included. Jerry West. Elgin Baylor. I think that these would be no-brainers to be on this team. Um, You know, these are among the top 10, 11 guys in terms of win shares of all time in NBA history. In fact, Wilt and Oscar were one and two. Um, a few other guys who, you know, would have been in contention, but not included, uh, and a few names that may be surprising in terms of their win share ranks all time in the league history at this point, Bailey Howell, seventh in all time in win shares. Win share is not a perfect metric, but I think does give some sense of, you know, what career, you know, value that they had provided throughout their career. Um, a little redundant there, but, uh, you know, Walt Bellamy also there, 10th all time in win shares, Hal Greer, 13th, uh, Jerry Lucas, 20th. So, uh, you know, it does feel a little odd to not have some of these guys in the team. And then you see someone like, you know, Bill Russell, Sam Jones, who had just retired, obviously belong on the list, but it's weird to have them on the list and not Wilt Oscar, I guess. Um, but then again, you know, you also get some spotlights to some of the forgotten early players that we'll talk about here. So I, I don't really know necessarily know how I feel about, you know, the fact that, you know, you maybe if you'd had like a you had to be retired for three or four years kind of rule might might have made it better. But I don't know. It's a little weird either way. It, it is tricky. Yeah. And that's we, we talked about that when we talked about the original 50th anniversary team that it felt kind of weird that like there were current players that were on there. But you kind of knew like Shaq was probably you know going to remain one of the 50 greatest of all time or at that even even early in his career was still going to probably be one of those guys. And, and you're obviously your Pippins and your Jordans or whatnot had, had obviously established that already. So it didn't feel so weird to have them on there. But it also like I would have been fine if they didn't have any of the current players on there. Then again, if we go back and look at this and we look at the 50 greatest players, you know, in 1997 or whatever, and it's like, Where's Michael Jordan? Where's Scott? Like, it would have felt weird. So I don't know. I don't know the right way to do it. I think there there really probably isn't a right way, but it is a little tricky that, like you said, guys like Russell and the Sam Jones are on there, but Wilt, just by virtue of not retiring yet, is not on there where it's like very obvious that that he was. But um, I don't know. I, I, I'm fine with it because I feel like the declaration of this team is not necessarily as much as the 50 great. Because like that one, the 50th anniversary team was very much, you know, branded as the 50 greatest players of all time or whatever. Whereas this one was just celebrating the 25th anniversary, the quote 25th anniversary 
of the NBA. So I, I don't mind it. I don't know. I don't know if there's a perfect way. I, I don't, I wouldn't bother me if those guys were on there, even though they were still current players, but it doesn't bother me that they're not. I think there's still a, a decent way to, to discuss them. And, and like you said, it, it highlights some of the other guys too, that maybe, um, wouldn't have gotten their due had, had some of these guys that were currently playing still had gotten on the list. So I, I don't know. I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of in between on it. Sure. Sure. Uh, so the selection process, there was a selection committee of NBA luminaries, which we'll talk about in just a minute. They picked 25 nominees, and the criteria basically was you had to complete your career and you had to have at least one all-NBA selection. It could be first or second team, but you had to be on the all-NBA team at least once. Um, and then the uh, 25 nominees then were uh, – there was a vote taken by – players, uh, I believe active or retired, who had at least been on one first team All-NBA up to that point. Um, And then uh, from that vote, there were 10 players who were selected, two centers, four forwards, and four guards. Um, We'll get into the the team in a little bit. We'll talk about selection committee first, but just some notes on the team. Uh, Bill Russell was the only unanimous selection of the team and only players... um, as, as I mentioned, only players who had completed their careers and been named All-NBA at least once were eligible. Um, and also, only four players on the 20th anniversary team were selected into the 30th anniversary team uh, 10 years later. Um, and then eight out of the 10 players who were ultimately selected for the team were selected onto the NBA 50 greatest of all time in 96. We'll, we'll get into who that was once we announce the actual team itself. Absolutely. Uh, selection committee, I think, is a pretty interesting part as well. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, we'll kind of go through some of the players, or excuse me, well, they were, some of them at some were, yeah. <laughs> one point were players, but uh, coaches and executives and owners who had been, um, who were responsible for selections here. I, I would say the overall theme is, one, that these were guys who had been following the league since basically, it's a, you know, the BAA's inception in 1946. So they, they had seen it all. They had seen everything. Um, they were certainly qualified to select this team. Uh, however, they all, of course, come in with their with certain biases, whether it's for their franchises and, and even more importantly, probably come with the view that the BAA was truly the league and that the NBL was the, you know, the not important league. So th- yeah. that's oh, for worth, sure. worth, worth noting here. Absolutely. But yeah, for sure. Uh, most of the, most of the guys have ties to one team and most of those teams have some roots in the BAA. Most of them. I mean, some don't. But yeah, there's guys that are definitely synonymous just with one franchise either they coached with them, played with them or owned them. And yeah, as you said, almost to a man, every single one of them have roots in the BAA. And very, I, I don't know if anybody even maybe one or two have any minor roots in the NBL. And that's that could be another big issue, as well as you mentioned at the top. Right, yes. So, um, first we have uh, Red Auerbach. He was the GM and former coach of the Celtics, of course, and, and longtime executive. It had been, uh, began coaching in the BA, actually, in his first season with the Washington Capitals. Um, also had a year with the uh, Tri-Cities Blackhawks before making his way to the Celtics and and, and the dynasty that would be created there. Uh, so, obviously, longtime roots um, in the BAA. Uh, then we have uh, Ned Irish, who was the president of the Knicks since the N- since the BAA began, um, and was a famous promoter of uh, college basketball in Madison Square Garden starting into the 30s. In fact, was pretty instrumental in the uh, growth of uh, of both college and pro basketball uh, eventually. Uh, and yeah, a lot, lot to his um, a lot to his life and career here. But he was another guy. And then we've got uh, the mogul. Uh, I, I think you should take this one, uh, Rich. Yeah, Eddie Gottlieb. So he, um, interestingly enough, and I don't know if I knew this until I just looked it up right now. He, the NBA Rookie of the Year award is still named after uh, Eddie Gottlieb. So did not know that, but now I do. Uh, sole person in charge of the NBA scheduling until the day he died in 1981, which I found 
pretty fascinating as well. It's an impossible job, uh, but it was done by one man for a while. Uh, his legacy dates back to the South Philadelphia Hebrew Association, then the ABL, BAA, and nearly all major early leagues, except for the NBL, of course, because who cares about the NBL? <laughs> we'll just ignore them. But uh, he won seven titles as coach of the Philadelphia uh, Sfaz uh, in the ABL and won a BAA championship as a coach in uh, 1946-47, uh, led by Jumpin' Joe Folks and his innovative jump shot, of course. But uh, yeah, Eddie Gottlieb, big ties to the Warriors, the entire Warriors franchise as early as they began. Um, and yeah, a lot of uh, early stuff in the NBA as well. Also, uh, Haskell Cohen was the next guy as well, and I think he's an interesting one as well. PR director of the NBA uh, from 1950 to 1969, creator of the NBA uh, All-Star Game. We mentioned that before in, in, in prior shows, but uh, the big reason for the NBA All-Star Game was uh, to change public perception after the uh, infamous college basketball point-shaving scandal. Uh, they wanted to at least say, hey, no, basketball's on the up-and-up, we promise, and uh, he wanted to do this All-Star Game. Nobody else in the league really wanted to do it except for the Celtics. The Celtics said, yeah, we'll do it. So they funded the game, they hosted it, and it was a tremendous success. And obviously it still exists to this day, so it's, uh, it worked quite well. Also, uh, uh, Haskell Cohen, he uh, helped create Parade Magazine's annual high school All-American teams uh, for, football, for football and basketball. And those are still, I believe, uh, pretty prominent uh, for high school basketball rankings and whatnot. So definitely a uh, good background there for Haskell Cohen and then uh, Eddie Gottlieb as well. Yeah. And then uh, we have Danny Biazzoni. Uh, he was the founding owner of the Syracuse Nationals, one of the largest advocates for the uh, shot clock. Uh, some controversy behind the uh, shot clock because he's often credited as being the creator of it, but really it was his uh, general manager, uh, Leo Ferris, who came up with the idea of dividing up the number of seconds in a 48-minute game, which is 2,880, dividing it by 120, which is total shot taken by team, and which leading to the uh, 24 seconds. So, um really the idea that a uh, good game should have each team basically having 60 shots so um but he was certainly an innovator a um you know promoter for the Syracuse Nationals one of the early founders of the uh, league also uh, helped convince the NBA to adopt the backcourt foul rule 953 so certainly an innovator in, in that respect and uh you know helped the uh, steer the ship for the Nationals despite having a limited financial resources i believe his primary um uh, income came from a from running a bowling alley. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, the good old days of the NBA when you could run a yeah. bowling alley and, and own a little team. But uh, yeah, I, I, we always find the shot clock thing kind of funny because, and, and we've still stuck with it. And I guess it's fine. But you know what I mean? Like when you realize how it came about and that it just was like, all right, well, 24 seconds, let's go with it. Like, I guess his reasoning behind it isn't horrible. And I guess it's worked out fine. But I just find it like very funny that in this era where like everything is just broken down and, and, and thought of so meticulously. And it's just like, ah, oh, yeah, 24 seconds, whatever, go with it. <laughs> like it's just right. become, yeah. but I, I mean, it's fine. It, I think it works like it does it doesn't not work but it's just like okay like we haven't like at no point did anybody say hey this be sony guy was just like coming up with numbers why don't we try to figure out something else but it's just like nah we'll go with it it's 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 very fascinating in that sense because it actually it, it works and it's it's similar to like a lot of sports rules like baseball like the 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 space between bases is just like it just happened. <laughs> it's like, all right, whatever. Yeah, that's the space yeah. with the bases. It's like, all right, cool. It's like, all right, whatever. And then everybody just follows it like blindly for the rest of time. But I, it's fine. The 24 seconds is fine. You know, does it not work? I, you know, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, uh, one guy who does have some uh, NBL roots is Lester Harrison, who is the owner and was once coach of the Rochester franchise uh, and uh, was on the committee, in fact, that uh, was part of the brokering the merger between the BAA and the NBL that, that created the NBA. Um, 
and uh, he retired after the the, the team uh, as a coach after the Rochester had five NBA divisional championships, won the 1951 NBA championship, also the the Royals won the 1946 uh, I believe uh, NBL championship as well. So they were they were powerhouse in both leagues, and maybe the one franchise that sort of gets a little bit hurt because the fact that the NBL uh, stuff isn't considered. Absolutely. No, no, for sure. Uh, he's definitely one that uh, falls there. Uh, Fred Zollner, uh, Mr. Pro Basketball. He founded the Fort Wayne Zollner Pistons with his sister Janet. Uh, he won an NBA title, uh, two NBA, NBL titles in 1944 and 45, so another NBL guy here. Uh, reached the NBA Finals in 1954 and 55, uh, and it was at his kitchen table where the NBL and BAA merger happened. Uh, also, he's noted for uh, purchasing a DC-3 in 1953, and he was the first owner to fly his players to games, except uh, there's one funny story where he flew his players but forgot his coach because his coach got on a train. While the rest of his players got on a plane, and uh, believe it or not, the plane got there first, uh, and the train was a little bit later than the plane. So that's, uh, I know it's a shocking revelation here that planes go faster than, than trains, but there was a good example of that as well. Uh, and the NBA's Western Conference Championship is named after Fred Zollner, which I find hilarious because, of course, it's in Detroit. But at a time, Detroit was very west for the NBL, <laughs> the NBL and the uh, NBA, so it makes perfect sense that the, uh, the, the, the man synonymous with Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Detroit, uh, the NBA's Western Conference Championship, uh, is named in his honor. Uh, even though yeah. the Detroit Pistons, as far as we've known in our lives, have been in the Eastern Conference. But hey, you know, that's <laughs> that's how it was back in the day. So Sure. Hey, it's, uh, it's funny how things land, yes. Uh, next, uh, Ben Kerner. Uh, he was the co-founder and owner of the Hawks franchise. Actually, another guy who has the uh, the NBL roots. Um, and uh, anyway, he uh, did make a pretty good call in hiring Red Arbach to uh, coach his team in 1949, but uh, not less smart was the decision to trade players without consulting Red, and then Red ended up leaving to go to the uh, Celtics, and there was a, a long uh, rivalry where um, uh, between Kerner and Auerbach over uh, various situations, especially when the, the Hawks and the Celtics were battled each other in finals in the late 50s. Um, Kerner also was famous for drafting Bob Cousy, uh, sending him to a Chicago, and then the uh, Stags ended up being um, they ended up folding, and uh, and Kuzi ended up going to the Celtics, where he had a legendary career. Uh, also, made not the best decision involving Bill Russell um, trading his rights to the uh, Celtics, <laughs> and yeah, that's uh, not so great for his. Um, also, famously in the 1957 Finals, uh, Kerner and Arbach got into a competition uh, with each other on the court over before the game over a dispute over the height of the basket, and uh, Arbach ended up punching uh, Ben Kerner down. So, <laughs> yeah. f- fun early days of the NBA. Yeah, I don't know why Arbach had to punch him. I mean, he's got a lot over on old Kerner there. But uh, obviously, true. you know, as, as the Hawks were still a good team and a good franchise as well, I won a yep. title with Bob Pettit. Uh, obviously, the Cliff Hagen trade we've talked about for Bill Russell made sense at the time. Yeah, you know, in hindsight, not great, but you. You know, it worked pretty well, and the, the Hawks were good uh, with, with Cliff Hagen, just not, you know, as good as they were or may have been with Bill Russell, but it all kind of worked out pretty well. But, yeah, the uh, uh, yeah, he really should have stopped dealing with the bosses. <laughs> like, when Red called, you just hang the phone up, Ben. Sure. Just hang it up. It's probably not going to work well for you. Yeah. He was infamous for his, for his impatience with coaches because he went through uh, something like 11 in yeah. 10 years where um, when um, – when Bob Pettit was playing, so yeah, not, not the best. Uh, Fred Schaus, I believe, is our next guy here. He played for the Pistons and the Knicks. He was later GM and coach of the Lakers. Uh, he got the Lakers to seven consecutive playoff appearances and four Western Conference championships in five years uh, before moving to the front office. And this was he was he was still pretty active in the league. I mean, a lot of these other guys we mentioned are either just kind of barely active or had had stopped being real real active a few years prior. Uh, Fred's still going. I mean, he is still coaching, I believe, uh, or at least still actively in the front office he, by the time this yeah, team he was, came. He was in the front office at that point. He he. Had, 
was not coach, but he was in the front office. Okay, so he was still, yeah, but only a few years removed from being a coach or whatever. So he's still, like, pretty active in, in the NBA, so it's kind of interesting to see uh, him in here. But, yeah, played uh, has background with the Pistons and the Knicks, uh, as well as with the, the Lakers, uh, as well, for Fred Schaus. Yes, uh, and then Bob Fiebrick. We'll get into more him more later, yes. but he had uh, he played for the Washington Capitals, uh, was later the coach for the Caps and the San Francisco Warriors, also at the time was in the Warriors' uh, front office, uh, twice on the All-BA first team, um, and interestingly enough, is going to, uh, we're going to spoil it here, but he is uh, included as a finalist on the NBA 25th anniversary team and uh, was only one of the two members nominated who are not in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Uh, he's very stands out very much on being on this team although we dive into it a little bit later you can see the merits of his selection but the fact that he uh, is on the selection committee and is on the silver anniversary team and is probably the least famous member of that team raises a few eyebrows I would say uh certainly yeah no we'll, we'll talk about him a little bit later but yeah it's uh, he seems like one of the least accomplished guys to be on the selection committee and also one of the least accomplished guys uh, to be on the team as well but uh, hey I don't know if those two things are related but eh, whatever you know hey maybe he's a nice guy yeah maybe he, probably nice guy. he yeah. probably picked up all the bar tabs and you know what Fuck, you know if, if that's the case then yeah you can be on the team why not sure why not why not you know it's uh yes <laughs> so diving into the silver anniversary team itself so as we mentioned there are 10 players who made the final team um and uh and we have uh we have bob pettit who uh we're gonna just c- kind of go through their uh their ranks at the time in win shares and, and any other notable stats at the time uh he was fifth all time in win shares in 1971 he played for 10 years had um was on the all nba team 11 times including 10 times the first team also was twice mvp you know we, we, we've di- we've dove into bob pettit a lot um before but obviously one of the greats of all time no question he belongs on this team um then next we have Dolph Shays uh, played for uh, 15 years was fourth in win shares all time in 1971 uh, he was uh, 12 times on the all NBA team six on the first team uh, six on the second team one of his first teams was a tie so I don't know because he was on the ha- half on the first team in that year <laughs> yeah, but I don't know but well so, yeah but anyway <laughs> nevertheless a, a, a very good accomplishment for for Dolph yeah I, I don't know about the half tie yeah, I don't know how, how do we declare it like I don't want to give him just half credit for that but i don't want to no. give him full one credit so I, I don't know i don't know i don't know it is, is he like tie goes i mean come on figure it out so play a game of horse or something and, and settle it or I don't right know. Yeah. there you go yeah there you go that's a good idea. yeah <laughs> so five and a half first and and six and a half second do, do we go there i don't <laughs> that's I don't messy know how that's we, messy yeah, yeah i don't know that's we'll, we'll just go ahead and give him the whole first one sure not, yeah we'll know? do it yeah yes so uh, so, uh, so Paul Arizon, uh, and he played uh, from 51 to 62, but he missed two years because of uh, duty in the Marines. Uh, despite a relatively short career, was still eighth all-time in win shares as in 1971. Uh, was three times on the first team, one time on the second team. Obviously would have had more probably first teams or uh, if he had not missed those two years of his prime. Uh, he was third in points when he retired in 1962. Uh, was uh, His nickname was Pitchin' Paul, and he was known as a jump shot pioneer along with his uh, teammate uh, Joe Folks, who we'll get into in a minute, um, led the NBA uh, in points and in field goal position t- twice, and then led the Warriors to a championship 56 along with uh, Neil Johnston and uh, Tom Gola, uh, other notable uh, top 25 nominees. Um, and the, also, we, we should say that um, that uh, 
PER in Winchester 48. His numbers are not as good there. Uh, they're only 18th in PER and 13th in Winchester 48, but they were not available for players pre-1952, so that would obviously skew things for the very early part of sure. his career, and there's going to be guys further down if, if we get into those stats where um, they're, they're not going to be very reliable, which is why we're mostly talking about Winchester here. Yeah, it's, it's going to be tricky. And that, yeah, again, like we always said, Winchester is kind of a messy stat, but it's one of the better ones for historic players, so that's a big reason why we, uh, you know, for better or for worse, I don't think it's a horrible, horrible stat. I know there are better ones, but it's a big reason why we use it because it's it's the one that's most readily available for certain players of certain eras so that's why sure yes so uh, another guy here uh joe folks uh, who played from 47 to 54 from the very beginning of the baa uh in, in 1971 only 98th in win shares and 237th in per but again because basically those were only available to the end of his career and he had a big drop off in, in his last couple years yeah, of his career yeah. that's excusing but still three-time first all nba um one time second. Uh, in fact, he was he was only twenty five, or he, he was uh, not only twenty five, but he was uh, he was twenty five when he first joined the BA after four years in the Marines. So it, he may have been able to start his pro basketball career earlier if it not had been uh, for the war. Of course, he would have been in the NBL, not the BA, since it did not exist yet. Um, but he is best known for being one of the first jump shooters in basketball, uh, and you know among the handful of players who really popularized that for the first to really popularize it in the pros. Um, was the top offensive player in the BAA when he, uh, his first couple years, um, set the, in fact, the league scoring record four times, including, uh, he had 63 points in 1949, which remained the league record for 10 years until Elgin Baylor broke it, um, in uh, the 47 season, he averaged 23.1 points per game. Uh, Bob Fierick was second in the league uh, with 16.8 points per game. Bob, Bob Fierick appearing uh, again, uh, notable name. Uh, <laughs> star of the show, Bob Fierick. There you go. Yeah, he is the star of the show, yeah. Um, obviously, Bob Fierick, huge draw for you know casual bat- listeners. Oh, yeah, so yeah. No, we're definitely going to use him as the... Name. Yeah, we're going to use him as the featured image, and I'm going to say Bob Furyk and the rest of the uh, NBA 25th anniversary team on the post at, at, at Fansided, because that'll definitely get the uh, the old hashtag clicks for yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. The, absolutely. the kids absolutely. love Bob Furyk. Well, they, they do. They love him very much, which is why he was on the selection committee, clearly. Exactly, yes. NBA yeah. 2K, the, I mean, you can't go him. online without people, you know, trying to play, you know, as, as, as Bob Furyk. So, yeah, it, it, it's he's certainly taken over the, the park and the playgrounds of uh, <laughs> the nation. Yes, 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 absolutely. <laughs> Uh, so uh, he averaged a 26.2 points per game in a uh, BA Finals win in, in 47 over the Stags. The next year, averaged 23.5 points per game in the Finals loss to the original Baltimore Bullets, um, and was top was in the top two in points per game in his first three seasons. Uh, he did, however, have a career field goal percentage of only 30%. Now, this <laughs> was in an era in which field goal percentages were were very low compared to what they are now although 30 percent i still even during that era was not particularly good so. not great yeah you can innovate the jump shot but he wasn't great at making the yeah. jump shot which is fine well, you know, that, that's I, mean, cool. he, I mean he, he made it at an incredibly high rate he was you know maybe the iverson of his time in terms of just uh it checked up a lot of shots and was an exciting scorer but uh you know the field goal percentage was you know a little bit of an issue for him he, he had right. fewer tattoos though i probably some from being Marines, <laughs> some i would guess but fewer yeah. yes yeah fewer yeah. also wore a headband and, a, and an arm sleeve though so he yes, was very similar yes. in that sense but because yeah, of... but the the cornrows were unfortunate choice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was not not a good idea. Yeah, that was that was poor. So yes, um, 
So, uh, so Rich, do you want to take the uh, the next few players? I think these are yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, this guy you may have heard of him, but uh, William Russell played from 1957 to 1969. It looks like here, uh, third in win shares, 28th in PR, 10th in win shares per 48. Uh, I think a three time uh, All NBA first team, eight time second team, five time MVP. Oh yeah, he was the only unanimous selection on the team as well. It's Bill Russell, of course. You put Bill Russell on the goddamn team, of course. Yeah, like you can't have the team without Bill Russell, and he was obviously unanimous, so that made a lot of sense. Uh, uh, there, so we've talked a lot about Bill Russell. We don't have to talk about Bill Russell again. We have a WrestleMania series if you're really curious about learning more about uh, Bill Russell. So go check that out uh, in our archives. Uh, next, we have George Mikan. Uh, played from 1948 to 1956. Uh, 1971, he ranked ninth in win shares, second in PR, and third in win shares per 48. Uh, six-time All-NBA first team. Uh, don't really need to give you too much detail about George Mikan as well. He's one of the innovators of pro basketball and a guy who I just recently found out has a statue not far from where I live, so I'm going to go in there and take a photo one of these days. He's in Joliet because I know Ooh, that he's nice. from Joliet, Illinois, and we were driving by. Uh, we did a tour of the old uh, abandoned Joliet prison, uh, which is pretty fun. It was like around Halloween or whatever, and we're driving by, and and you know we I, I, I was in a rush to get home. I had to do something, and I look, and I'm like, is that a George Mikan statue? <laughs> That's just from I'm like, it is. Like, what the hell? Like, so I got to go back there one of these days and, and get a picture in front of this George Mikan statue. I didn't know it was only like 20 minutes from my house. So uh, I got to go do that. All right. It's Bob Cousy. Uh, you probably heard of him. 1951 to 1963. And also in 1970, but we can just kind of let the 1971 go. Uh, 1971 ranks uh, win shares 16th, 17th in PR, uh, 42nd in win shares per 48. He was one of our uh, interesting cases when we were talking about the 50 greatest players. Uh, but at this time, he was no doubt uh, on, the, on this team. Uh, 10 time All NBA first team, two time. I'll be a second team and one time uh, NBA MVP. So that's Bob Cousy there. Uh, then we'll do Bill Sharman again. These are all players that you're probably familiar with. So I don't have to get into a ton of details. 1951 to 1961 for Bill Sharman. Uh, 1971, he ranked 18th in win shares, 32nd in PER, uh, and 19th in win shares per 48. Four time All NBA first team and three time All NBA second team. So those are guys that felt very much like no doubters, guys that are in, in some ways some of the better players. I mean, obviously Russell and Mike, innovators of the game, one of the top, you know, at that time, maybe contention for the top players of all time. Uh, then Bob Cousy, of course, one of the greatest guards of all time, and then Bill Sharman as well, one of the greatest guards. So these guys all felt pretty unanimous and pretty obvious and, and, and pretty easy. Yeah, and, and, and Sharman, of course, and Cousy, you know, backcourt mates with the uh, Celtics. You know, we already have uh, three Celtics on this team at all. I mean, Sharman, I think, would have been one of the guys who would have been bumped off the list had they included, you know, current players because, uh, you know, West probably would have replaced him or. Yeah, um, right, right. You know, and, and not that I'm, you know, he definitely has a very strong case to be on this list. Um, and it was, you know, was obviously he was one of the the great shooters of his day. I probably a little bit like Reggie Miller of his day. I think that would probably be the in terms of the kind of the style, the way that he played. You know, coming off screens a lot, and um, you know, and, and and he was a big fitness nut, and he was in really good shape for his time, and and was an, a a very efficient shooter and a, and a great free throw shooter as well. So. Um, Next, we have uh, Bob Davies, who uh, played in the uh, in the NBA BAA from forty nine to fifty five. He also had some years with the in the NBL in the um, mid forties. Um, Seventy one ranks. Uh, these are lower because because uh, of just uh, the short time that he played. Relatively, the win shares forty seventh, PER thirty third, and Winchester forty eight thirty seventh. Um, he had four all NBA uh, first teams with one tie again, not, not we'll, we'll just give him the full one, even if it's a, you know, technically a little bit less. And then one time on the second team, he was known as the Harrisburg Houdini and he was basically Bob Cousy before Bob Cousy did what was then considered crazy ball handling, like behind the back dribbling, uh, was also his innovative passing, you know, that, that, that sort of stuff. And, um, and had a lot of success, obviously not nearly as heralded as Bob Cousy, but he led the Royals to the 1951 NBA title. Also, um, 
led the Royals to the 46 NBL title, which I think I mentioned before, and two finals in the NBL. And was usually, I, I think the Royals would have been a even more accomplished a team if it had not been for the fact that George Mikan was in the league and was basically winning almost every year, um, except for one year where he broke his leg and the Royals managed to win the championship of that year. Pretty much until he retired, it was the Lakers every year. Yeah, absolutely. And then finally, our last choice, another Celtic great, uh, Sam Jones, uh, 1971, um, Winchers was 14th all time. PR was 29th, and Winchers 48 was 15th. Uh, was the least accomplished in terms of the All NBA teams. Was uh, only three times on the second team here. Again, I think that has a lot to do with the fact that Oscar Robertson and Jerry West were in the league, and were um, you know, and, and Sam didn't make all those lists just because of that. But he was obviously a great player and probably limited himself somewhat because he played on you know the fact that the Celtics had so many options in terms of playing. And early on in his career, he was a reserve, you know, behind mm-hmm. uh, Sharman and Kuzi, even though he was you know, just about as good as those players. And, and you know led and became even better than those players as his, as his career uh, advanced right it's just a, a big chunk of his career he's the third best or the you know the third best guard and the fourth best player on the, on the Celtics and it's like yeah but you know those players are Bill Sharman and you know Bob Cousy and Bill Russell so it's like not really you know a slight on him whatsoever it just happens to be you know in, in some ways the right team because obviously the success and, and he was a great part of that huge success but also in some ways maybe the wrong team in, in that if he had played for another team you may have seen him have you know god your numbers and be regarded more more as as as, as a leader and, and and the best player on his team or whatnot, but I think he'd he'd probably be okay with the way his career went and, and everything like that. So no, he definitely he definitely deserves to be on this list for sure. So uh, now we look at the other nominees, um, and we're again we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the more obscure players and and uh, the guys we talked about before. We'll uh, just uh, give a cursory summary of their uh, accomplishments. Our old friend Bob Fierick is first. Oh, oh yes, yes. <laughs> the leader, the whole focal point. What you came for, you know, you, you come for the Bill Russell, you stay for the Bob Furyk, though. A- well, absolutely, yeah. Well, no, you, you come, come for Bob for... Furyk. You come for Bob Furyk and stay for Bob Furyk. You just want yes. all the Bob Furyk stuff you can get. So, <laughs> yeah, we really should have made this exclusively Bob Furyk show. That really would have been a better idea. <laughs> Coming in retrospect, soon. But Coming soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Exactly. So. Yes, as we mentioned, not in the Hall of Fame. It's a tragedy, you know, of course. Um, played from 1947-1950. His 1971 ranks really only win shares applies because the others didn't ex- really exist yet. 61st in win shares, which, you know, for four years in the league, uh, in 25 years, um, is pretty good. Uh, twice on the first team, once on the second team. And uh, and Curtis Harris, uh, our, our good friend from Pro Hoops History, uh, wrote a good uh, summary of... Um, of Fierick's career, um, he uh, he actually did play in the NBL before going to the BA. We'll talk a little bit about that. But uh, he and Red Auerbach actually had a close relationship while they were stationed at the Norfolk Naval Academy during World War II. Um, and then Auerbach, once he uh, joined the uh, Washington Capitals, he was at that point coaching high school basketball in Washington, D.C., persuaded the owner of the Capitals to make him the new coach of the franchise in the BAA. And then he got together some of his old uh, buddies from Norfolk, including uh, Fierick and uh, and uh, Fat Freddy uh, Scolari. And a, uh, they, they were a very strong team in the early days of the BAA, even though they did not win a championship. But um, Fierick uh, had a... Uh, had a strong uh, career already with the Oshkosh All-Stars in the NBL. Uh, they made the finals of the um, 
what was actually it was not actually the NBL finals, but it was the finals of what was called the World Professional Basketball Tournament, which was a multi-league tournament that was really the most prestigious title at the time. Um, eventually, as the uh, the merger happened and the NBA established itself, that was no longer the case. But for a few years, you know, like th- th- there were teams from all over that that went on that league. You know, the Philadelphia Spaz that we talked about earlier were I, I were joining in yeah. Harlem Globetrotters back when they were you know more a competitive team went in the the. Uh, the Harlem Rens, you know, all, all the all the great teams of of the time, independent of and in leagues, were going on in that tournament. We, that's probably another topic we should delve into. We should, point, we but. should absolutely do it. And now I want that to happen. Like now, I want the like the champion of the NBA. I mean, obviously the NBA team would probably win, but I want the sure. champion of the NBA team. I want FIBA. I want uh, throw the G League in there if we want. Let's get sure. There you, you go. Know? I mean, yeah. like let's see if you know the yeah. the Santa Clara Warriors can beat the Golden State Warriors. I don't yeah. think they can, but I want to find out. So I, you know? I want to find out absolutely. Right. So. I don't want to see uh, if like some you know one of the uh, you know Real Madrid can take it to the uh, to the Warriors. You know, I want to see sure. that. I want I want to, I want that right yeah. now. So Cisco Moscow, you know, can can they beat the Warriors? Right. It's, yeah. It's, exactly. You know, like how incredible the world wants to know. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I mean, there might be some legality purposes. There might be a whole we don't want our contracted players playing in this stupid tournament thing. But I don't might care. Be, but I want it. So, yeah. yeah. I think the NBA owners would want to see it. I think they would want to see it happen more than they care about their own investment. Exactly. Right. I mean, yeah, if, right. if there's one thing NBA owners love is is making fans happy and they don't care if it loses them even a dime as long as it make they make the old fans happy so that's all that yeah. matters the the only thing they love more than that Bob Fierick. <laughs> Bob Fierick, of course. Yeah, absolutely, yes. So uh, speaking of Bob, uh, as we mentioned, the Capitals, very successful in the BA. In fact, they were 49-11, and 11, uh, which uh, set a record for winning percentage that I think lasted until uh, until the Philadelphia 76ers uh, beat it in um, in. 1967. Yes, I'm sorry. I give the seven, the six, the six, and the seven. Sometimes you, I have to think about that in my head. But anyway, um, Fierick was by far the team's leader in win shares and true shooting percentage. They were, however, upset by the uh, Chicago Stags in the uh, playoffs. Uh, it was a, that was a little weird because they were the, the two best teams in the league, and somehow they met in the uh, in the uh, first round. Uh, we don't need to talk anymore about that. But the BAA not always the best run organization. They did, however, make the uh, finals uh, versus the Lakers in 1949. They lost in six games, and Fierick actually missed the series because of injury. Probably um, didn't. Maybe, maybe they would have won if he had been there. But um, anyway, he was a brief, uh, briefly the Caps player coach uh, in 1950 as the the league became the NBA. Then he retired from for pro basketball to coach his alma mater, Santa Clara. Then became the um, the uh, Warriors general manager from 63 to 74 and was put in the position of director of player personnel. I don't know how that's different from GN, but it was the different, uh, <laughs> a, a different uh, job anyway. He, he, he um, died in 1976 uh, just a few years later, but he did help his final piece of his legacy was helping put together the 1975 championship team. So, so yeah, there's Bob. Yep. Bob Furyk. There he is. Yep. I, I wonder if uh, being buddies with Red Auerbach may have helped him get on this list. I don't know. Just a, it's, just a thought. It's possible. Just a thought. Yeah. Just a thought. But no, that's, I mean, he's still got a pretty decent career there. I don't, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I'm not trying to, um, we're making, we're, we're teasing about Bob, but yeah. No, I no, think Bob's, it's, fi- Bob's it's fine. fine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he seems fine. like we, a good nominee here. We're, we're going to talk about a few guys who got left off, and there's probably one who may, I would have put like ahead of him. But, you know, getting somebody who belonged in those early days, um, I, I, I think is good. It would have been nice to see if they could have found somebody from the NBL who would have like kind of fit that criteria. Although uh, some of the guys here, you know, if you look from like 46 to 49 in the NBL, I don't see like an obvious guy who isn't on this list, you know, because some of those guys like Davies and such are, you know, 
sure are sh- should be there already so I, I i think they actually didn't really screw the nba directly because of this list no absolutely and, and of course we have to remember too it's 1971 so it's not it's like the decisions are mostly made by a bunch of guys like standing around a table smoking like i doubt they're like right. ah let me look at the stats like hold on one sec uh, let me right. like you know <laughs> it's just a bunch of dudes smoking and drinking brandy and being like yeah i yeah. tell you that five Furyk, he was a hell of a player and they're like all right sounds good to us like I, you know what i mean like i really don't think it was very intensive in terms of the uh you know statistical like analysis of each one of these guys you know in no, terms of no. I, I, I'm guessing that we've put more work into yes. uh, it, uh, th- more than, than they had, did. Yeah, in, I bet it was about 45 team, so. minutes until their cigars yeah. were out, and then they put the cigars down and said, hey, let's go to the bar, and then they yeah. went to the bar. <laughs> you know, sure. And then that was it. So. Yeah. That was, but, uh, all right, move on now. Harry Gallatin, uh, 1949 to 1958. Uh, 1971, he ranked 19th in win shares, 10th in PR, 14th in win shares per 48. So he's got a pretty good case here. Uh, only one time, though, All-NBA first team, uh, one time All-NBA second team. So you can see a lot of those, like, even though statistically he ranks pretty high or in the upper echelon for some of the things, I uh, didn't really pop up on too many all NBA teams as well, mostly because I uh, playing with some, you know, some heavy competition in those eras for forward. So it makes a lot of sense uh, why he would be left out a little bit. Uh, Tom Gola as well, 1956 to 1966. Uh, 1971, he ranked 44th in uh, shares, 117th in PR and 73rd in shares per 48. Only one time made the all NBA second team. Uh, and he doesn't have gaudy numbers like a lot of the others on the list, but he was really a, a valuable asset to the teams he played for. And you could see it uh, by their success. Uh, he teamed with the all pro, uh, with uh, Paul Arizon and Neil Johnston to lead the Warriors to an NBA championship in 1956. Uh, and he was an elite scorer in college time, Gola, but. And we went to the Warriors, and he was with Ayers and, and, and Johnston. He changed into more of a defensive, passing, rebounder guy, kind of a Draymond Green type, in the sense that Draymond Green probably could score, you know, 20 points a game if he really wanted to, but is more happy just being a defensive, passing, rebound guy and letting, you know, Steph Curry and, and Clay Thompson and Kevin Durant and stuff do their work. And that's kind of how I see Gola as well. He, he was obviously capable of being a good scorer, but realized that Ayers and Johnson maybe were a little bit better, and he could fit a better role, you know, as a defender, passer, and rebounder. So hurt some of his stats, but doesn't quite get there. But regardless of that. Uh, 1959-1960 Gola becomes the first Warrior to have three straight games with a triple-double. The only other? Draymond Green in 2016. So of course there's another example of how uh, in a lot of ways he reminds me of a Draymond Green type where he could do a little bit of everything on the court. Maybe not any one stat all that gaudy but people that watched him and and, and knew about him knew uh, just how valuable he was uh, to the the team's success. Yeah, yeah, and I think the Draymond Green is is a good comparison because I think that he was elite at being a glue guy, elite at being a role player. You know, some of the guys, you know, like like Dennis Rodman or um, you know, there's a handful of players that we could think of who are the kind of guys who are able to be elite players without having that without without you know showcasing that ability to score. As, yeah, as you said, like a Ron Artest is one I always think of as well. I mean, he yeah. you know remember those Kings years? He was scoring like 23 a game or whatever. And then he goes to the Lakers and he scores. 11 a game because he's like I don't need to you know I don't need to right. score like I don't want to score I want to you yeah. know defend and pass and rebound and do all that sort of stuff so yeah he capable of scoring 25 a game but didn't really need to and would adapt to uh, not doing that absolutely yeah and then um and then Richie Guerin who uh, most played most of his career with the uh, Knicks and later with the uh, Hawks uh, you know, was was an elite scorer during his time. Uh, 1971 ranks. Uh, win shares was 26, PER was 46, and win shares of 48 was 61. Um, three times uh, on the 
on the second team. Um, you know, he was kind of dogged. I think of the fact that his the teams that he played for generally for his career were not super successful. Although the late the late sixties Hawks, you know, had some had some good moments, but he was stuck on the Knicks for a long time when the Knicks were not uh, very good. He was he was known as their best player. He was a really tough minded guy. Uh, was you know one of, one of those char- great characters from the fifties and sixties, the the hard drinking uh, types. Um, would later uh, have some issues coaching uh, Pete Maravich. Let's say we had 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 some issues getting through to him, but was. Um, you know, was was a tough player in his day. It was uh, also, I think, was well known for being disgusted with the fact that uh, with the hundred point game from Will Chamberlain, because he was on the other side of this and felt that the uh, the Warriors, uh, you know, did not play the game the right way. So right. to speak, may have been trying to get uh, Will to that hundred points. Right. Just a yes. just a thought that maybe they were trying to pass it maybe. to him and and, and right. get it. But no, no clear. Di- no, I don't know for sure, but it felt very much like they may have been. Uh, in on this <laughs> that might have been yeah it's possible <laughs> yes so it subverted the game i guess it would be the way yeah. that he would have put it but anyway um and then we got uh we got tom heinson um played from 57 to 65 uh, of course you know, one of the great uh, boston celtics players uh, another guy who i mean he was you, a, a prominent scorer for the team although there was no one really you know on the team who averaged a whole lot of points because they they like to spread things around so i i think another guy who in a sense um could have been like a 30 point score if he'd played for a different team because he had that ability, but he, um, he blended in a little bit more with the, um, you know, on the Celtics versus a, a different team that he would have had. But uh, he was 37th in, in win chairs in 1971, 39th in PR, and 35th in Winchester 48. So I, I think is more of a marginal guy on this list, although certainly was, you know, was accomplished during his time. Absolutely. Yeah. No, definitely. Um, yeah, I, it, it seems like a good to be nominated, but not necessarily on, on the team itself. So I'm, I, I think I'm fine with where he's at and where his place yeah, is. Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah. And then a, a couple of uh, guys from the uh, 50s who I think are, you know, were very elite during their time, but have sort of been, their effectiveness has kind of been forgotten off. And they were two two big men. Uh, the first is Neil Johnston, played yeah. from 52 to 59 with the uh, Warriors. Uh, his his ranks uh, in the league were 15th in win shares, 4th in PER, mm-hmm. and 4th in winters of 48, which, you know, is, is obviously super high. He was uh, four-time on the first team, one-time on the uh, second team. And he played, you know, at least the beginning of his career was playing while um while George Mikan was in the league and then of course you know played with uh played with Bill Russell being in the league so um the fact that he was able to be on all those for all those all NBA teams despite um you playing with those guys I think you know says something right there no absolutely yeah and and gaudy numbers I mean led the league in in, in scoring a few times I mean definitely a, a guy that you know you look at overall he doesn't I don't know if he's regarded as as being one of the kind of the all-time greats or the one of the greats of this era but probably should be I mean he's really got the the yeah. stats to back it up and 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 some of the success to back it up too I mean a lot of all-star games in a row as well just overshadowed by a few other guys in the league but yeah shouldn't really be taking anything taken away from him he had a really really great career right and 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 part of that team uh the warriors team that won the 56 title and you know had some good success so um absolutely uh and then the other guy talking about ed mccauley um played from uh 50 to 59 uh and mostly with the celtics although ended his career with the hawks was part of the bill russell trade uh his ranks in 71 12th in win shares 15th in per and 9th in winters are 48 so top 10 guy uh, mm-hmm. based on that ranking uh third in uh, on the three times on the first team one time on the uh, second team and um you know, probably when he was traded, he was the, he had been the best player in Celtics history, and he was he was definitely more of an offensive minded player than a defensive minded player. And obviously, once they you know brought Bill Russell in, it completely changed the um, you know what the Celtics were able to do. Uh, but you know, he shouldn't necessarily suffer because he wasn't as good as Bill Russell. I mean, right? I, 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 <laughs> that's a hard that's, that's a hard thing to follow. Yeah. Yes, yeah, unfortunately, right. exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, move on now, Slater Martin, a guard from uh, 1950 to 1960. Uh, 1971 ranks 54th in win shares, 208th in PR, and 127th in win shares per 48. Five-time uh, made the all-second team. Uh, some of those stats might not reflect what he was, and he was one of the best defensive players in the NBA in the 50s. Uh, he won four titles between 1950 and 54 with the Lakers. Uh, 1956, he joined the St. Louis Hawks and helped them alongside Bob Pettit, of course, win the 1958 NBA title. Uh, never a dynamic score and didn't rack up really gaudy numbers, but success is obviously there with with the, the titles with Minneapolis and the titles with St. Louis. Uh, career-high 13.8 points per game in 1955, uh, and then a career-high assist per game was uh, 6.2 in 1956. So good numbers, but not great. And the playoff numbers across the board, I thought this was interesting as well. If you look at all of them rise, like his points rise, his assist rise, his re- everything goes up in the in the playoffs. And that just kind of leads, I think, a lot of ways to the success that all of his teams sort of saw in, in the playoffs as well. So yeah, he uh, he's a guy who, yeah, the numbers don't really reflect it, but the success, the team success, and him being a part of that success, definitely... Uh, Put, probably puts him on this list as well. Uh, Dick McGuire, yeah. another guard here. Same era as well, 1950 to 1960. Uh, 46th in win shares, 79th in win sh- uh, PR, and uh, 71st, I should say, in win shares per 48. Uh, one time made the All-NBA second team. Uh, and he led the league in assists during his rookie season with a then-record 386 assists. And then, of course, uh, made the uh, NBA All-Star team seven times, 1951, 52, 54, 55, 56, 58, and 59. So uh, definitely had... Um, was definitely one of the better guards of his era. Stats, again, like uh, across the board stats don't really show it. But, yeah, great uh, great passer, uh, good defender, and then obviously uh, uh, enough to make the all-star team uh, as many times as he did as well. Just uh, maybe not yeah. top, top tier of this list, but definitely a, a good contributor. Yeah, and then probably also put on the list just to make Ned Irish happy, you know. Uh, right. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, and he was a very, you know, and, and he was not only not only as a player, but for the Knicks for a long time in, in various roles, in front office roles, and his scout roles, and coaching roles, uh, was a, um, you know, was part of that franchise, so an important part of the franchise, and, you know, was part of the uh, teams that made the finals three years in a row that did not win a championship, but were, you know, obviously successful in the early days of the league, and, you know, I think Martin and McGuire both kind of fit that mold of, yeah, the numbers aren't great, but they, you know, certainly, um, you know, you can look at their reputation and you can see that, you know, they, they had a lot, lot to offer. And it was a little bit harder for guards to, you know, amass some of the impressive stats during the time. And you talked about Slater Martin's career assist, you know, average was only 6.2, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it wasn't really until Kuzi, um, and this was, I think, even more in the mid-50s, where there were not guys who were getting, like, 10 assists per game up until really the, more more into the late late 50s or so. Right. Um, when, when the pace started. Started to increase. I mean, that was obviously a, a huge part of it. So, and I, and I think they were a little bit more conservative about, you know, issuing assists up, up until like the uh, 50s and 60s. And guys started to, you know, approach that level more often. Oscar obviously being an, another one of those. So, you, the, the stuff that we rate guards on, point guards especially on um, now, was not it was not the same in the 50s. So, absolutely no, it's it's a big part. And also the we mentioned a little bit earlier, but the whole propensity of not making shots. And there was a lot of people not making shots at this time. So obviously it's sure. hard to get uh, in a assist if the guy you pass to misses the shot and you know gets his own rebound and puts it up then you're not getting the assist and, and as you said in a lot of ways uh now you I mean, you, you'll see some assist now where like a guy dribbles five times they still give the assist to a dude or whatever which sure. is a little much whereas those days it, it felt like it was a little more if you didn't directly relate your pass wasn't directly related to the to the score they're not going to count it so yeah it's always kind of tough to, to to look at the stats so for him to do as well as he did in that number i think it definitely reflects uh, how great he was yeah um and um a couple other guys um if you um 
uh, a couple guys from the uh, Lakers dynasty of the early 50s. Uh, first, uh, Vern Mickelson. 1971, his ranks were 17th in win shares, 30th in PER, uh, 21st in win shares per uh, 48, four times on the all-second uh, team. He was, of course, the, the tough, rugged uh, forward of that team. And it, it was sort of known for his um, you know, being really physical, for his defensive play, for setting screens, but also was you know a, a, a offensive stalwart on that team along with, with perfect guy to pair with uh, with George Mikan and then uh, Jim Pollard who was um, he, the numbers aren't quite as impressive the 1971 ranks he was 80th in win shares 80th in PER uh, 113th in win shares for 48 and played from in the um, BA NBA from 49 to 55 uh, twice on the first team twice on the second team but he was you know a um, he was a, a great leaper of his day, you know, was was definitely a, an important glue guy for that Lakers team. And even if the stats aren't quite there for him, I, I think he definitely belongs as, as a part of, you know, one of the two most important dynasties the league had seen in, in, during that time. Absolutely. For sure. And then we have a Maurice Stokes. Um, and this is one where um, he only played for three seasons, 1956 to 1958. Uh, he was listed as a center for one season and a power forward for two seasons, although he was only listed as at six foot seven. Um, and the, the 1971 ranks aren't, aren't really that helpful, but we'll, we'll just we'll list them anyway. Wind shares 160th. PER was 12th, which is which is interesting. Um, and then Wind shares 48 is 103rd. Uh, three times on the all uh, second team for the league. And uh, you know, he's best known as one of the NBA's uh, greatest tragedies. His Hall of Fame career was cut, you know, far too short. And one of the guys you you thought would have, um, you know, what what he would become. His career averages were 16.4 points per game, 17.3 rebounds per game, 5.3 assists per game. You know, look at a guy like um, you know Anthony Davis or even like an early version of LeBron as as one of these like do everything players who was you know had tremendous size, but also could have you know could race down the court and you know was great ball handler great rebounder you know very good scorer um yeah I think the only thing that really was a low mark on him is his, his shooting percentage wasn't very strong but obviously it was early on in the league that definitely could yeah. have improved that was improving across the board as the league you know evolved into the late 50s and early 60s but you know you imagine him with Oscar Robertson um and you know how great those Royals team could have been if you know it hadn't been for the the tragedy that, that befell him. Yeah, it, it, it is awful because yeah, you you look at the stats and you look at the numbers and you look at everything and go, oh man, this guy was like right on the cusp of being like an all time. I mean, that's sixteen point four points per game and seventeen point three rebounds per game. I mean, it's just nuts stats. But uh, yeah, it's just uh, obviously one of the great tragedies uh, in NBA history, unfortunately. And then uh, next is Bobby Wanzer, played from 48 to 57. His ranks in win shares was 33rd. PER was 47th, and, and win shares for 48 was 30th. Uh, three times on the uh, second team. He's another guy who is more, you know, kind of a glue guy type as opposed to a, you know, really good stats type. But in um, 52, he was the first player to ever shoot over 90% from the free throw line in a season. It's been done 163 times since, but he got there <laughs> first. So, um, And was was another guy who was part of those really good Royals teams mm-hmm. uh, you know, with Bob Davies and all those, and Arnie Rise and all those other guys from the uh, mid-40s to the uh, the mid-50s. So, And what was on the 51 championship team. Uh, George Yardley here, 1954 to 1960. Uh, he ranked uh, 38th in win shares, 14th in PR, 20th in win shares per 48. So uh, pretty high up there uh, in PR and win shares per 48. One time All NBA first team, one time All NBA second team. Uh, led the Pistons to back to back finals in 1955 and 56. Uh, nicknamed Bird, he had a relatively short career, but was an elite scorer. Uh, the first to score more than 2,000 points in a season. Also known for his, quote, flamboyant play, which uh, was probably just a sh- uh, the fact that he shot off the dribble uh, and had a quick first step, but that at that time was very flamboyant. 
flamboyant. <laughs> and uh, he said that uh, Yardley uh, said at one point uh, that uh, Arizin and he were the only guys who took their jump shots at the apex of their jump instead of shooting uh, while on the way up. So kind of interesting that he uh, in some ways may have uh, perfected the jump shot a little bit the way as we know it. But uh, yeah, that's George Yardley. Uh, for you, but uh, yeah, what do you what do you make of his flamboyant play? <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know. It might be a little bit too flamboyant for me. I might I, <laughs> want to dial there, down a little buddy. bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what what's this jumping stuff? I don't know. I don't really. I, I don't really believe in jumping in basketball. I mean, no, you stay on your stupid. feet. You stay with your man. You know, you put your hands up. You just, you know, you play the right way. See, I try to do that when I go to parks, and, like, nobody else wants to do it. And then I just keep getting blocked and stuff, and it's really <laughs> stupid. Because I'm like, guys, no, stop playing flamboyantly. Like, You're not supposed to jump. Yeah, just stop, stay on the ground. Stop jumping. we're all equal. It's much better. James, James Naismith did not he, – he was not in favor of jumping, so why would yeah, I be exactly, in favor right. of exactly, right. I follow yeah. Naismith rules to a T, so I don't know why these other, I don't know what these other kids are doing out there. But, yes, so. yeah. Yes, I I use a uh, you know I, I use leather ball. You yeah. know I I don't I don't believe in dribbling. You know you just you stand and you pass. Yeah, and, and I shove shoot. guys into cages too, and they're always like, "What the right. hell are you doing?" <laughs> like, yes. hey, you know, hey, absolutely. Look, you I don't know. play ball. We're playing ball. Let's do it. Let's go. Absolutely. So, uh, and then we have uh, our final uh, player on this list, uh, Max Zaslovsky, uh, played from forty seven to fifty six. He is not in the Hall of Fame, and I I think has a very strong case to be in the Hall. Of yeah, Fame. he does. We'll yeah, kind of strange here. Yeah, yeah. Um, 1971 ranks. He was 50th in wind shares and um, 149th in PER, 205th in wind shares and 48. But again, uh, was only really the, the last part of his career where those last two stats cover. So it's a, not really a good uh, evaluation for him. Um, four times on the first team. He was actually the youngest player on a league first team uh, until uh, at age 21 until LeBron James joined the league. To uh, so that's pretty good company right there. Um, he spent uh, two years in the Navy during World War II and then only one year at St. John's before leaving for the pros for uh, the Chicago Stags. So not playing all four years in, Ooh, in college. Controversial. Yeah. yeah, that's why he's I not know. in the Hall of Fame because he's oh, there you go. busting through the uh, the ranks here. Yeah, that's probably Yeah, right. bucking tradition. Yeah, you know. Um, and then he led the Stags to the BAA Finals in 47 uh, versus uh, Joe Folks and the Warriors. Of course, the Warriors won that won that uh, championship we talked about before. And then led the league in scoring in 1948. In fact, was the youngest in league history to lead in scoring until Kevin Durant. So another pretty good company for him. Um, at the time when he retired, 56, he was the third all-time leading scorer considering the BAA and the NBA combined uh, behind uh, Mike and Folks and was a member of the International Jewish Sports Hall of Fame and the New York City Basketball Hall of Fame. Uh, he passed away in 1985 at age 59 due to complications from le- leukemia. Was part uh, he, he kind of bounced around a little bit in terms of the teams that he played for. As mentioned, he played for the Stags. He also joined the Knicks uh, during the um, middle of their run of uh, NBA Finals appearances in the 50s and I think played for a few other teams as well. But So maybe part of the fact that he's not in the Hall of Fame is he's not necessarily established with you know one team he you know kind of kind of was a little bit of a journeyman later in his career but absolutely for you know a while at least was certainly one of the elite players of his time absolutely no yeah it's kind of strange that yeah they, I, I feel like he should be in the hall of fame but I, I like that i like the number of being the youngest first teamer uh, at age 21 i mean and, and also like breaking the ranks of college because screw you know screw college basketball we're an nba podcast here so i'm, I'm all for max breaking the lines here but uh, yeah it's pretty uh pretty interesting that he's not in there because it feels like he did accomplish quite a few things but um yeah yes whatever. and, and- and he was in a relatively minor role, but he also was part of the Fort Wayne Pistons uh, finals appearances in 55 and uh, in 56. I don't right, think he right, actually right. played in the 56 series, but that would be that would be one, two, three, four, at least five finals appearances uh, during his uh, career, um, which, you know, that's that's, uh, that's pretty good. Oh, certainly. Yeah. 
yeah, that's uh, that, that would have been pretty high up there. If, if, for anyone who was not a Minneapolis Laker at the time, that would certainly have been, uh, you know, up until the Celtics dynasty, of course, that would have been, you know, the probably the most in uh, in the league. So um, he was he was on some winners. That's that's for sure. Uh, so uh, a few guys who are worth considering, I, we don't need to delve too deeply in them because I think there's only really one who I think would have been an obvious snub. And that's the first guy we're going to talk about. Cliff Hagen, um, was a two time, uh, second team, all NBA and looking at his, his rankings, I think it says it the most at win shares. He was 21st PR. He was 20th, a winter 48. He was 26th. Uh, you know, he was the, he had been a long time St. Louis Hawk. Uh, one of the, um, you know, one of the great players along with a Bob Pettit, of course, and it was part of their great, uh, you know, their, their stout front line. Um, it definitely has the numbers to back it up. I, I was wondering if it was possible that he was maybe a victim of ABA, NBA politics, where he was, uh, he had, he had jo- jumped, I guess he hadn't jumped because I think he technically retired in between, but he went to the ABA as a player coach with the Dallas Chaparral. I don't think he was no longer in the ABA when this was actually created. I don't know if he had, um, if there's anything to that, but as as you mentioned here in the notes, there were other guys, including George Mikan, who had had ABA affiliations and were not snubs here, like Bill Sharman or whatever. So yeah, yeah, I, it's true. I mean, yeah. Mikan was the goddamn commissioner of the ABA, like, right? I feel like you well, know, yeah, it's, it's not like you can leave George Mikan off the list. I mean, no, that's, no, that's, I get that's it, obvious. I get it. But yeah. like, I don't think and, you can lift Cliff Hagen off the list. I mean, really, if you look at those numbers, like I, I, I mean, I. I suppose you could, and I suppose you could just say I just barely missed it. But I mean, some of the names we mentioned here, I think Cliff Hagen's better than a lot of them. So yeah, it's just um, it's very strange. I don't know. Yeah, he, he must it, have not picked little... up bar tabs. I think it's the one I, we're finding. I, out. Well, right there he you must go. Have been and, and, or I, something. <laughs> and I think personality-wise, he was a little bit uh, certainly on the court. He was known for like is it, like being just like really crazy and insane and getting into fights and you know and making people mad. So yeah, uh, I, I think I think off the court he had a better personality, but maybe that maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know. I, again, this was something where I tried to look for. Um, and maybe I didn't mention this, but I I tried to sort of look at, to see what anything was written about this at the time or really subsequently in terms of the policy behind this because i think they, they must be fascinating but we couldn't really find anything no. um about it so th- we're only able to speculate here which is fun but um but uh it would be nice to have any some idea of what uh, was going on there yeah yeah we couldn't find much so who knows yeah who knows so if anyone does know wants to uh, let us know uh you, you of course can we'll, we'll give you what we where you can reach us at the end of the show it's the usual places so uh anyway uh, the other guys who were on here uh jack twyman uh larry faust another guy who definitely belongs in the hall of fame is not in the hall of fame uh clyde lovellette uh arnie risen carl braun who i think would all you know kind of be, be guys who have all um ab or excuse me all nba or ba appearances who i think you know would would have a case to be on here but i i can't really say any of them particularly have stronger cases than anyone who wasn't included yeah and all these guys i mean yeah there's obviously the, the hagen is the one uh so, i mean i guess you could sort of make a case for faust you can kind of but yeah the rest of the guys it, it, i'm fine with where they uh where they probably ended up and, and and them being left out it's hard when you're trying to make this team i mean there's going to be snubs obviously uh guys that deserve it so i think they did otherwise a pretty decent job other than maybe one or two guys yeah, no, and even the one or two guys, like, I, you can totally see why they did Oh, sure, I mean, sure. I, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it's not like it's, you know, it, it, they, they did a pretty good job here. The the experts in, you know, the, the guys who, who were lifers for the league, yeah, they actually did a pretty good job, even if they probably spent, again, they probably spent 45 minutes on it and then went to the bar. Yeah, <laughs> but they, yeah. that's, you know, they're so, smart people, so yeah, it only yes. took them 45. 
So we'll wrap it up here with our selections. Who would have been our starting five for our silver anniversary team? If we have to go with the players that they picked out of the 25 selections, who would we have chosen for this team? Uh, yeah, so my starting lineup, if we have to kind of stay strictly positional uh, right now, I, I had Sam Jones as one of my guards. I had Bill Sharman as the other. Uh, Dolph Shays, Bob Pettit, and Bill Russell. So it went a little weird there without a pure point guard, but I, I, Jones could deal with it. He, he's fine. Like He can handle the ball uh, there. But yeah, I went Jones, Sharman, Shays, Pettit, and Russell as my five. Yes, and I had a, a similar list. Uh, I went with uh, I went with Kuzi. I went with traditional point guard. I think just you know, like ten times all NBA and that MVP. I think um, I, I, I think puts him on there. Then I went with Sam Jones as my other guard. I, then I copied with you with Shays, Pettit, and Russell uh, for my front. That line. seems like the obvious. I mean, that Shays, Pettit, Russell. It's hard to make an argument for any of those other. I mean, those dudes were were great. And and it seems yeah, it seems pretty tough. Without maybe you can make a Mike in case, but. Uh, not over Russell. <laughs> yeah. yeah, not over Russell, right. no. Yeah, and I think the toughest call there is between Jones and Sharman. Like, um, and I, I went with Jones slightly over Sharman, but it's, it's extremely close. You know, you could definitely call um, either way. I totally get your logic in Jones and Sharman, but I, I do think Kuzi just, um, I, I do think he was more accomplished than either of those guys, even if For sure. um, you look at some of the more advanced stats and maybe he's a little bit overrated in terms of that. But still, I, I think he belongs there. If I could go positionless, then I would actually, probably go with Russell, Mikan, Pettit, and Chase, uh, and then either Kuzi or Arizon as, as my fifth guy, depending on, you know, um, you know, depending. And then, that of course, you wouldn't really have any guards, and that would kind of be a problem. So I, I probably good to have at least one guard going on sure. there. But, you know, that's uh, that would probably be my choice there. All right. Well, I think that's about it. Uh, thanks, everyone, for uh, checking us out. And, uh, of course, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Over and Back NBA. Uh, you can leave us a review on iTunes. We've got some recent uh, ratings, at least on iTunes, but we'd uh, we'd love some more. Uh, those those five star reviews really uh, help us out. And uh, you can also, if you uh, you can listen to us on uh, pretty much any uh, podcasting platform, we are there. If we're not there, you can let us know, and we'll make sure that we're added there. But uh, although we, we usually like the uh, the iTunes, or I, I guess it's Apple Podcasts now. I always uh, forget to call it Apple. Podcasts, yeah, it is. But... Yeah, they've rebranded. I think Google Play is now just Google Podcasts, or they keep rebranding oh. this shit. Those weirdos. Come on. All right. Well, you you know where to go. You can you can find us. So anywhere you want to leave us a rating and review, we would uh, greatly appreciate it. And uh, any feedback you want to give us, we we like hearing from you. We um, we do this for our enjoyment, but also for people's other people's enjoyment. So if you're into what we're doing, just let us know, and uh, we would do that. You can also find us at um, at uh, the Step Back, which is also fan sided NBA. Speaking of rebranding, so um, you uh, you you can find us easily there. And there's some always great stuff in the NBA season. There, great. Uh, Fast Street Breakfast is another great podcast that's there, and there's always some great stuff being written there, so you can uh, you should check that out as well. So, did I forget anything, Rich? I think you got it. Yeah, we mentioned the Twitter, mentioned uh, Facebook. You can follow us as well, uh, but over and back NBA.com, it'll be kind of our hub, and then, yeah, just find us wherever you can, and then if uh, if there is a podcast app that you use and you cannot find us, please let us know, and we will make sure we get on there because it is pretty easy to get on there, but maybe, uh, we, I think we're on every single one, but if there's some random one that you and five of your buddies use, we'll make sure we get on there too, so just let us know uh, at over and back NBA on Twitter or uh, over and back on Facebook. You can let us know as well, and we will get on there as soon as we can. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll be back soon.